In our uh, last discussion, I, uh, I began by talking about the medical profession and their brutality. Do you remember how they don't tell the truth? They say it'll hurt a little bit and they pull out an eight-inch needle. I got a lot of comments about that. We have a lot of medical professionals in our audience, evidently, who uh, took issue that they aren't telling the truth. Well, even if they did, I will give this to them, even if they did tell us the truth, we wouldn't like that either, would we? Huh? In fact, it's interesting, among the comments that I got, one lady sent me an interesting uh, illustration of how we really don't want to hear from them the truth. Uh, A man went in to see his doctor for routine physical. The nurse came in to cover the basics. You know how they all do that, stall for time for the doctor not to get there. Uh, She asked the man, how much do you weigh? He said, oh, about 165 pounds. The nurse looked at him and said, would you step up on these digital scales, please? And then she said, hmm, you weigh 197 pounds to be exact. She then asked him, how tall are you? He said about six feet. She looked at him and then had him step up to the measuring rod by the back wall and said, hmm, you're exactly five feet, eight inches tall. She moved on to take his blood pressure and then said in the middle of this, sir, your blood pressure is extremely high. Hi, he said. What do you expect? When I came in here, I was tall and lanky, and you've told me I'm short and fat. (laughs) It's really not funny, is it? Oh, well, for those of you in the medical profession, you know, keep telling us the truth. You've got a tough job. We need to to hear it. Having finished the first chapter of uh, the book of Ruth, all that we have studied up to this point is really one piece of bad news after another, isn't it? The truth is brutal. In fact, apart from Ruth's commitment to Naomi, the story is a tragedy that Shakespeare would have appreciated. Two widows return to Bethlehem. One is a foreigner. The other one, an older widow who had once been an upstanding member of the Bethlehem community, now destitute and impoverished, In fact, she's reduced to living on handouts. Chapter 2 of Ruth is where it all begins to turn around. In fact, all of chapter 2 takes place in one day. This is one day. It's going to take us 14 sermons to get through, but it all took place in one day. But what a day it will be in the lives of Ruth and And Naomi and a bachelor named what? Who? Boaz. Now, before we dive into the text, you need to keep in mind these are the days of the judges. There's no record of a priest. In fact, there's no record of a prophet offering counsel in these days. These aren't easy days to be a spiritually minded man or a virtuous woman of character. The odds are stacked, as it were, against them. In fact, by the time you get to the end of chapter 2, you might come to the conclusion that these are some amazing coincidences. It's like a semi-marked good luck has backed into the field and just unloaded on these people. There's no way this could happen in real life. The truth is, it did happen in real life, and you have a Truth for us, believers in any generation, that living in any culture, for God, there is no such thing as coincidences. 
In fact, when you leave your choices to God, there is no such thing as chance. Ruth uh, chapter 2 will also reveal the invisible hand of God in the midst of ordinary, everyday decisions. There are no voices from heaven. There will be no uh, signs or clues. There will be no visitations from angels. They will experience no visible signs pointing the way. In fact, as I re-entered this scene and studied it as if it were for the first time, it struck me that Ruth chapter 2 is the personification of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Leave your choices to him. And he will direct your paths. Literally, he will make your paths straight. That's exactly what is going to happen here. Now, the chapter opens with the author sort of dropping in a hint that hope is on the way, doesn't he? Look at verse 1. Now, Naomi, Samuel is writing this account more than likely, had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, with that brief statement, the author immediately builds anticipation and hope by by hinting to us who know about the role of a kinsman redeemer uh, that we've just probably been introduced to the knight in shining armor. We're given several glimpses into the life of this knight, this upstanding man of God. This man named Boaz in this rather brief biography. But let me, let me point out several things that you can pull from this about him that will actually tell us a lot. First, we're told that Boaz is clearly related to Naomi. The Hebrew word here for kinsman can refer to either a friend, perhaps even a, a, an acquaintance well-known, or a relative. Now, we're going to find out later, but you already know it, those of you that have studied through this book, that he was, in fact, a close relative. In fact, according to rabbinical tradition carried now for several or many centuries, Boaz was believed to be uh, the nephew of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. What we do know is because he is a relative, he is a potential redeemer of Elimelech's estate which would then rescue not just Ruth, but Naomi from destitution and poverty. So already in that one sentence, we're given a hint that hope just might be on the way. Secondly, we're told that Boaz is greatly respected in Bethlehem. Now this phrase here, he he was a man of great wealth, is actually a, a phrase difficult to define. It's translated... Valiant warrior in Joshua chapter 6, verse 2. It's translated in 2 Samuel 17, 8, a mighty man of war. When the angel of God came to Gideon in Judges 6, he said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Same phrase here. The term, in fact, has such a strong military nuance that some scholars believe that Boaz might have been a veteran soldier. 
Since Boaz did live in the days of Gideon, some even speculate further, an eligible man to serve, and Gideon called for the faithful men among the tribes to to fight with him, that Boaz may very well have been one of Gideon's 300 valiant men, which is the phrase used here. The word, however, or this phrase, means more than a valiant soldier. It's also translated in the Old Testament, a man of great influence of integrity. In fact, the same expression will appear in Ruth chapter 3 verse 11 when Boaz tells Ruth that she is a woman of excellence. Same word again. Finally, the the, the word is used in 2 Kings 15 verse 20 to refer to a man of means, a man of financial wealth. So I guess I say all of that to tell you, any way you want to slice it, Boaz is is a a powerful man. He is a highly respected man in Bethlehem. He's a man of honor and integrity and and influence and more than likely wealth. He owns the fields that Ruth will, will glean in. All of these attributes are going to be proven throughout the remainder of this little this little book. Let me point out one more quality to Boaz that could easily be overlooked and yet in my mind cemented my view of this man as a godly man. He was not only closely related to Naomi, he was not only greatly respected in Bethlehem, but thirdly, I want you to notice that Boaz was spiritually reassuring to his employees. In fact, skip down to verse 4 and We're told what happens when Boaz arrives at the field. So let's just jump ahead for for just a moment for the sake of this biography. And look at what happens. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they responded to him, May Yahweh bless you. Now you might easily skip this. Uh, I did the first time through this book. Don't, Don't miss this. He arrives and immediately shows concern that goes well beyond the normal shalom, peace to you, which was the normal greeting. Boaz's words here are are freighted with spiritual truth. He greets them, but he gives them hope. He says, may the Lord, may Yahweh be with you. In other words, Boaz is saying to his employees that he wants them not only to be blessed, But he wants them to to recognize that God is with them. He wants them to have the sense that they are working in the field under the good hand and the observation and the care of God. Can you imagine your boss walking past your desk tomorrow and saying, I just hope you sense God's presence today. He probably would get called to the front office being a little too religious. Can you imagine those of you who have people working for you? This is, this is certainly convicting for me. Can you imagine going by their desk or their, or their cubicle and, and saying, you know, I hope that you sense the presence of God as you work today. You, you would probably get some empty stares, some, yeah, maybe some would tear up. Maybe somebody would say, Nobody's ever said that to me before. You say, but this is Boaz. He knows he's going to be in the Bible. (laughs) No, he doesn't. 
<laughs> this is not just glib religious jargon, you know, God bless you. No, he meant it. In fact, his employees knew he meant it because they responded by saying, and hey, God bless you too. Again, remember the context of the times. Israel's morals are at an all-time low. The people have, um, have lived spiritually defeated lives now for nearly a decade. They are also raw with physical needs. The famine has just now lifted. But Boaz here cares about more than just a bumper crop. It isn't, hey, I, I, you know, God's watching you get to work. You know, that would be more normal. We better pull in a good load today. It's the first time we've been able to see something grow. Come on. Let's pray that God will give us the best crop ever. No, I, I, I hope that you sense God's presence in your life today. Highly significant to me. On the canvas of scripture, then, the portrait of Boaz is immediately painted with the brush strokes of, of spiritual depth, um, integrity, a measure of humility, certainly godly character. And, and then it struck me, as I followed down this train of thought for a while, maybe this was the reason he was still single. Maybe he wasn't all that interesting to the local girls. I mean, they wanted his money, but he just talked about God too much. He was just too religious. More than likely, he wasn't interested in them either. Because he hasn't, at this point, settled for anyone. These are the days of the judges when everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Judges 21, 25. So in a culture marked by moral and spiritual decadence, Boaz shines with depth. Let let me stop here and, and pull out of just this brief biography some principles, two of them, before we move on about character. Number one, even when most people have forgotten God, it's possible to develop godliness. In the middle of this generation... A man named Boaz rides out to his fields and greets everyone in the name of of the Lord. And, And understand, his tribesmen were no longer convinced that God would be worth following. Boaz says to his employees, listen, God is not only worth following, implied in in this greeting, but I hope you sense him today as you work. Number two, even when your culture around you becomes self-centered. It's possible to be self-sacrificing. This is a time when everyone was doing whatever they wanted to do. It was a dog-eat-dog world these days. Yet here is a man who cared about people, even people lower down on the ladder, on a lower rung in society. Now, the law of Moses dictated that a farmer was to leave the corners of his field for the poor. It also dictated they were to allow others to come along and reap what was fallen. In fact, fallen fruit couldn't be gathered by the farmer that was left for the poor. Even though this was dictated, hey, these these are tough times. No doubt throughout Israel, there were farmers who refused. They forbade 
gleaners, they would send their own farmhands back into the field to get whatever was left behind. These were tough times. These were not times for the laws of mercy and grace and generosity. They were for Boaz. He evidently here will care about the needy and the downtrodden. In fact, by keeping the law, he will find his wife. Imagine that. Well, we better move on to verse 2 or they will never meet. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. In Bible times, reapers, from what I have learned, would grab the stalk with his left hand and with his right, he'd, with a short sickle, he'd, he'd lop it off near its roots. Once he gathered a handful, he'd lay it down, and others would come along, or perhaps he, if they didn't have enough employees, and they'd tie those into bundles. And then they'd work their way through the field, and someone would collect the bundles. Uh, the reapers would work very carefully. There wouldn't be much left over. In fact, gleaning for fallen stalks or grain left behind was tantamount to eking out an existence. It'd be like somebody in our culture trying to make a living walking along the road collecting aluminum cans. Notice verse 3. And she happened to come to that portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Here Ruth has decided to help out her mother-in-law to survive, she goes to a field. And the Hebrew language in that phrase literally reads, she chanced to chance upon the field belonging to Boaz. I love that. What looks like a chance, a coincidence, is divine providence. She chanced to chance upon the field belonging to Boaz. Now remember here, for her, this is just an ordinary decision. There are no lights flashing. Uh, There's not a band playing out on Boaz's field. Come this way, Ruth. There are no greeters saying, come through this gate, Ruth, and find your destiny. No help like that. She's just making a decision. She just says, huh, I think I'll go over there. I see some people gleaning, and maybe they'll let me come along too. And so she enters into that field and begins to glean. To the world, it was blind chance. But you are immediately struck, aren't you? With this being nothing less than the providence of God's direction. This is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 in living color. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Is this a coincidence? Not a chance. Finding out the ways God arranged this initial meeting between Boaz and Ruth, as we'll see, is is interesting as it shows the hand of God behind the scenes. In fact, one of the things my wife and I like to find out about people whenever we're with couples is we'll ask them how they met. It's always fascinating to find out how they met one another and eventually, you know, went out on that first date and and then uh, married. 
We heard an interesting story a number of years ago about one couple who attended our, our church a number of years ago. They were both attending Bible college, getting ready to graduate. And just before this young man graduated, a friend gave him the name and address of a, of a girl her brother had dated. Evidently, uh, this young gal's brother didn't work out, and she knew this young man, and she said, you know, here's a commendable young lady, and she gave him her name and phone number. And that was it. He put the piece of paper in his wallet and forgot all about it. Two years later, he's now in the ministry, and he's preaching, and uh, one night he cleaned out his wallet and found in there that little piece of paper with this girl's name and address on it. He wondered if she'd gotten married. And on a whim, on a chance, he wrote her a letter asking her if she'd be interested in meeting him sometime. When the letter arrived, it just so happened to be that she was coming back from a conference where she had committed her life to full-time Christian work. She wrote him back and said, I would be willing to meet you if you're ever in town. So eventually this young man had a couple of preaching opportunities nearby. I'm sure he created them out of nothing to get into town. He arrived in town. On the day he arrived in town, World War II had just ended. And as a result, two national holidays were declared by the U.S. government, and his meetings ended up being canceled. He had nothing to do for two days And as a result, the girl's father invited him to stay in their home. He was either wanting to get rid of his daughter or out of his mind. One of the two. Eight weeks later, two months later, Paul and Betty Jane Freed were married. Paul, if you don't know, was the president of Transworld Radio for decades. Both he and Betty Jane were members of our church when we were meeting back at East Cary Middle School, and he's now with the Lord. And Betty Jane is now living in Florida, listening to every sermon I preach. So, hello, Betty Jane. <laughs> Would you like to say hello, Betty Jane? Hello, that will make her day. Thank you for the perfect illustration, Betty Jane. <laughs> Guidance from the Lord is promised, but it it just comes on the heels of ordinary decisions. There are no visions, no writing in the sky, no bands playing. But when your heart says the same thing that Ruth's heart said, the God of Israel will be my God. And Boaz evidently had a personal relationship with Yahweh. And he wanted people to sense his presence. David said it this way, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Psalm 37, 23. And so now, just a few decisions here and there, and Ruth is gleaning in the field that just so happens to belong to Boaz. And wouldn't you know it, Boaz just so happens to decide to come visit that field this very morning. Verse 4. Now behold... I like that. Now look, if you can believe it, is the idea. Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, 
Whose young woman is this? Now, he rides up and he says, may Yahweh be with you. May you sense his presence. And they say, may God bless you. And that's about when he spots this young lady and and everything freezes. He takes a breath and then asks his servant, whose young woman is this? This is the Hebrew equivalent of a whistle. You guys know how to do that? Have you forgotten? On the count of three, let's see if you know. Ready? One, two, three. Don't look at me when you do that. that that's that's kind of weird, okay? Look at your wife or your girlfriend. Try it again. Ready? One, two, three. There you go. Somebody's making big points back there. You can't believe we did this in church. I can't either. We're going to edit this whole thing. I do remember doing that to my older daughter when she was about four or five, just for, just for fun to see what she did. She didn't understand. She, she just kind of looked at me, and, and so I gave me an opportunity to prepare her and explain. I said, honey, look, that, that's one day some young guy's going to do that to you. And what he means is he thinks you're pretty and he wants your attention. And so when that happens, you just, you, you, you just run away from him and come home to daddy. <laughs> Here's the servant's response, verse 6. She is um, the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She's been sitting in that house for a little while. Now slow down a minute. Verse 8 informs us that, that Boaz is going to go and meet her. At this moment, she's resting. He spotted her in this house. Could have been a lean-to shanty for all we know. But, so between the greeting and the spotting of her and the servant telling him about her, and going to, to talk to her, there's, there's some elapsed time. In fact, between seeing her and going to talk to her, there's enough time for him to formulate in his mind a plan. There's enough time for him to already tell his employees what to do about her, because he'll tell her what he's told them. So we have a, a little bit of time here where he can you know, engineer this moment, where he can get just the right Words. It's no different than, than now, right? I mean, meeting that girl you are interested in takes, it takes strategy. It takes uh, thought and creativity, especially if you're really interested in her. In fact, some of you guys remember, some of you guys are single and, and, and well remember the first time you asked that girl. You're, you're, it's, it's, it's terrifying, right? Everything about your self-worth is on the line. You, you are giving this individual the opportunity to tell you you're worth something or you are worth nothing, right? One author said it's like handing a a, a girl a loaded gun, pointing the barrel directly at your chest, saying, will you go out with me and then waiting for her to pull the trigger? (laughs) I think it's interesting I'm in this text. Today, by the way, just so happens to be the anniversary of my first date with Marcia. 31 years ago. Happy anniversary back there. (laughs) I'd watched her all semester. 
She's in my British literature class, finally went over, got up the nerve, asked her out, and she said, yes. I mean, isn't that a miracle? What's so miraculous about it, huh? It was, trust me. So Boaz, he works up this speech. Look at the detail he's put into this, verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap. Go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. And when you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. He has figured everything out. Every conceivable thing to keep Ruth from ever leaving his field. She can follow freely behind the reapers. She can drink from the company water cooler, which is going to save her a lot of time. She doesn't go back to Bethlehem to, to refresh herself. And in a little while, she'll be given a free meal. Now, you notice that Boaz has already commanded his men not to touch her. That phrase can mean don't injure her. They may not have wanted competition for the fallen grain. I mean, who is she anyway? Where'd she come from? Those who are gleaning, they don't want anybody else. They're just a stalk here and a stalk there. They, they might push her down or treat her roughly. He's already given, given the directive. Could mean don't injure her. The phrase is also translated to have sexual relations in Genesis chapter 20, verse 6. Here's a young woman without protection. She's alone. She's vulnerable. She is a foreigner, which means she is without legal protection in Israel. Who could she tell? And who would care? Boaz has covered all the bases and effectively has told everybody, I am her guardian. Hands off. Don't get in her way. Don't lay a hand on her. Give her water. Whenever she wants to drink, you watch out for her. No wonder verse 10 tells us that when he communicates this to Ruth, Ruth falls on her face bowing to the ground, this is the Old Testament version of a curtsy, and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Remember, Ruth doesn't know Boaz is related to Naomi. Boaz does. Ruth only knows that this wealthy landowner is showing extreme kindness to her, an outsider. She can't quite figure it out. But then Boaz tells her why. He tells her what he knows about her. Look at verse 11. He says to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. See, he already knew this about her. And how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work May your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Boaz is saying, in effect, Ruth, I already know everything about what you've been through. The death of your husband, your commitment to Naomi, your conversion to the God of Abraham, leaving your family, leaving everything about your home. And I love what he said to her. 
Verse 12, look at it again. He says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Man, this guy walked with God, didn't he? Why haven't we heard more about Boaz over the years? Why are there books out there for men, single men, especially on on character and how to treat a a woman? This man's brief appearance in Scripture is convicting, frankly, to every man in this auditorium. He and Ruth have only recently met, and he's already talking about God. He's doing more than just dropping God's name. He's actually advocating for God. He is recommending God to her. He is saying, God is trustworthy. Listen, I know what you've left. I know what what you've lost. I I want you to, to nestle up under the wings of the Almighty and rest assured, He is trustworthy. He will watch over you. And then he says, I'm going to pray that God will reward you because of the decisions you've made. Boaz He probably could have proposed then and there and had a wife. Well, we're going to wrap it up in this session, but first let me give you two more thoughts to consider. Two more principles from this initial encounter. Number one, a permanent foundation for a romantic relationship is a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me speak for a moment to every single person especially. If uh, that guy or girl you're interested in walks with God, it will not take you very long to discover it. If after one date, their acknowledgement of God and, and, and the things of God doesn't come shining through, whether it's, you know, he prayed before you ate or, or he or she, you know, made reference to church or, or to the Bible, the Lord, if, if that doesn't come out loud and clear, leave them in the dust. Don't go past one date. I don't believe in evangelistic dating. I don't think dating is for discipleship either, although that will, that will be part of it. I've told countless individuals over these 23 years of ministry, after they've told me a little bit about what they've seen in the other person, and they've got questions, and they've got concerns, I've told so many of them, go home, put on your tennis shoes, lace them up real tightly, and run. I don't have a verse that says it just that way. But put on your tennis shoes, and lace them up, and run. Those nagging doubts about his character or her character are about all that you'll get in making decisions to move forward, but you have enough. I have dealt with people on the other side who refused to run, who lowered the standard, who made their choices apart from prayer and obedience to Scripture, who thought it would be better to marry an uncommitted Christian or even an unbeliever, rather than remain single. Now, the, the, the foundation for a relationship is a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Number two, permanent attraction between a man and a woman goes beyond the physical dimension and involves 
the spiritual dimension. J. Vernon McGee pointed out in his commentary on Ruth something that I missed my first time through. And I went through carefully to check it out, and it was in fact true. He pointed out the fact that nowhere in the book of Ruth are we told what she looked like. Not one physical description is given. And we're not even told what Boaz looked like. We don't know if he was six feet tall or five feet eight inches and a half. None of that. Boaz was smitten by her, no doubt. But what ultimately attracted this very eligible bachelor to her was her commitment to God and her character in life. That was it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this encounter then has all of the makings of something that God will, will bless. This first encounter out there in that Bethlehem field, though, is anything but a chance or a coincidence. God has been developing two paths that in a matter of months will become one path. Consider this. They both are acknowledging God in all their ways. And God is directing their paths together. We'll stop there. Father, thank you for this exposure of your character and your providence in the lives of two people. Thank you for the challenge that it is to us. Would you allow us, as we submit ourselves to you, for your empowering to to be concerned about people, to be concerned that people sense the presence of God, that people understand you are trustworthy, and help us to live beyond a world where image is everything and to develop personal character that ultimately pleases you. We thank you, Father, that that we can study this about the lives of two people long ago, but these truths are for us today. You know who we are. And as we acknowledge you and we leave the choice and choices to you, we can walk through our day knowing that even though ordinary decisions will be made, ultimately, your good pleasure is being accomplished. And so we pray that we would be living examples of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That we would trust in you, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge you, and believe that you will direct our paths. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.